We read the Holy Scriptures together in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, we begin reading at verse 13. And we're going to continue through verse 34. 13 through 34. And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny, that I may see it. And they brought it, and he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother die, and leave his wife behind him, and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife, and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and dying left no seed. And the second took her and died, neither left he any seed, and the third likewise. And the seven had her, and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err? Because ye know not the scriptures, neither the power of God. For when they shall arise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. And as touching the dead, that they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses, how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any question. We read the word of God that far. Let's consider the teaching of the Catechism this morning in Lord's Day 2. Lord's Day 2 begins the first part of the three parts of the Catechism concerning the misery of man. Lord's Day 2. Whence knowest thou thy misery out of the law of God? What doth the law of God require of us? Christ teaches us that briefly, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and the great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Canst thou keep all these things perfectly? In no wise. For I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, in Reformed theology, which seeks to set forth the riches and treasures of the Word of God, men have often spoken of three different uses of the law of God, according to the Scriptures. The first use of the law of God, according to Reformed thinking, is to give to us the knowledge of our sin, and therefore to point us to our great need for salvation, and then to point us to Christ. The second use of the law is to regulate outward behavior in society. That's a use of the law that we don't hear about too often. But the third use of the law is that it is a rule for the Christian life of gratitude to God for that salvation. The Heidelberg Catechism brings forth the law of God at two different points in its 52 Lord's Days. The first is right here in Lord's Day 2, in connection with the first use of the law to show us our sins and miseries. 
The second time the Catechism brings forth the law of God is in Lord's Day 34, in the third part of the Catechism, where it seeks to show us the third use of the law as a rule for the Christian life of gratitude. So the Catechism brings forth the law in its first and third uses. And yet the Catechism shows us, firmly based on Scripture itself, that we must not separate these two uses too sharply. Indeed, it can be said that it is precisely as a rule for the life of gratitude, as its third use, that the law of God shows us our sins and miseries. Lord's Day 2 does not present the law of God to us as a mere code of precepts, as a mere list of do's and don'ts, as a mere list of boxes that we have to tick off. But it presents the law as the living will of our God who loved us and gave his Son to save us. It presents it to us as the law of love, the love that we ought to have for God who first loved us. And therefore, Lord's Day 2, which sets forth the law as the source of knowing our sins and miseries, sets forth the law as the rule of a life of gratitude, that we love him who first loved us. God himself taught the law in this perspective to Israel in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Already in the Old Testament, after God redeemed Israel from the house of bondage, he gave them his law and said, This is the heart of it. Love me with all your heart and mind and soul. That will be your reasonable service. And in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, God gave this law at Mount Sinai, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Already in the Old Testament, God taught his people, My law is a law of love. Love me and love each other because of all that I have done for you. Our Lord Jesus Christ also emphasized emphatically that this is the essence and heart of the law. Matthew 22, but also in Mark 12, which we read together. When the scribe came to him, Jesus taught that the heart of the law of God is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and love thy neighbor as thyself. So let's notice this morning that this law of God is a rule of gratitude and the source for the knowledge of our sins and miseries. We consider Lord's Day 2 under the theme, Our Misery, Known from God's Law. Notice, first of all, learning how to explain our misery. In the second place, understanding the nature of our misery. And finally, knowing 
why we have this misery. The question of Lord's Day 2 is, Whence knowest thou thy misery? Now, misery is common to all mankind. Misery is a common phenomenon. There is not a man on earth who does not have misery. We live in a fallen world. We live in a miserable world. We live in a world in which we all struggle, every man, woman, and child, against all kinds of miseries, sufferings, sorrows, sickness, and ultimately death itself. These are the miseries that are common to all mankind. All human beings, believers and unbelievers alike, deal with sickness. We deal with anxieties. We deal with infirmities. We deal with sorrows and loss and death and pain. We know that there is misery in this world because we all experience it also us believers. The Catechism's question is, Whence knowest thou thy misery? And we have to see here this morning that the Catechism is asking this question to us as believers. The Catechism is not directing this question to the unbeliever. If the Catechism would direct that question to the unbeliever, he would give a much different answer to that question. Because this question has to do with the norm for human life in this world. What is the norm? What is the ideal? What is the standard for human life? And what then explains this reality of misery? What explains this universal fact of suffering and sickness and sorrow and death? What is the explanation for pain and suffering? If you ask the unbeliever that question, He's going to give a much different answer. If you ask certain unbelievers, they will tell you, perhaps, that the answer is to be found in the idea of karma. That's a pagan idea that comes from Eastern mystical religions like Buddhism and Hinduism. It's the idea that there is built into the very fabric of the universe a certain principle a certain law, it's a cause and effect, that if you do good, then good will come to you. But if you do evil, then evil will come to you. And therefore, if you are suffering, karma is teaching you that you must have done evil. And now you are suffering the evil as a result of the evil that you did. But if you have done good, then you will expect evil to be, uh, good to be done. If you would turn to the secular unbeliever here in Canada, in the United States and Europe, the one who has come from a formerly Christian background, but who has cast off Christianity and has embraced secularism and atheism and agnosticism, whence knowest thou thy misery? Then he would probably point you to the modern idea of evolutionism, which teaches that all living creatures on earth are involved in the struggle for survival. All living creatures are struggling against the forces of nature, trying to survive, and that in this intense struggle for survival, there is misery. 
There's pain. There's suffering. There's death. And these are just the natural and normal parts of the cycle of life and death of evolutionism. But the Catechism is not asking this question to the unbeliever. The Catechism is asking you. The Catechism is asking me this morning. Whence knowest thou thy misery? And so the Catechism is asking believers who confess in Lord's Day 1 that my only comfort in life and death is that with body and soul, in life and in death, I'm not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil. I belong to God. That's my confession as a believer. I belong to Christ. And now the Catechism comes and says, You, believer, whence knowest thou thy misery? You who confess faith in Jesus Christ, you who confess that God has chosen you before the foundation of the world, that he has redeemed you through the blood of his own Son, that he has sealed you with the Holy Spirit of promise, you who confess that you have tasted the joy of salvation, that you have tasted the hope of heaven and eternal life with God, you who say that you have comfort in life and death and the happiness that is only to be found in Christ, you who say that you know the love of God, whence knowest thou thy misery? And so the Catechism is clearly speaking about a misery that is unique to the child of God. The Catechism is asking us about the misery of our sin. Our sin. The Catechism is asking us about the misery of our sins against the God who has chosen us and redeemed us and loved us. The shame that we experience when we fall back into besetting sins again and again and again, though we confess the name of Christ. The agony and the anguish of our souls when we know that we should be thankful to him and faithful to him and obedient to him, but we don't. We aren't. We sin. And we sin again and again and again. The agony of soul when knowing that we are Christians, yet knowingly, intentionally, and deliberately, we sin. Whence knowest thou thy misery child of God. The answer that the Catechism gives us is out of the law of God. Out of the law of God. That's where I learn about my misery, the true nature of my misery and the greatness of my misery. We cannot explain the misery of life in this fallen world from any other standard or from any other source. The riddle of suffering and agony remains more or less 
a mystery to us and a great unknown. Why is there misery? Why is there suffering and pain in this life? It remains a misery, uh, a mystery, until we turn to the scriptures. And until we devote ourselves by the enlightening grace of the Holy Spirit to a study of the law of God in all of its parts, in all of its depths, in all of its aspects, when we devote ourselves to a careful, believing study of the law of God and what God requires, that's when we come to know our misery And that, first of all, because the law of God is the norm and the standard for all human life. And that's across the board to believer and unbeliever alike. The law of God is the standard for human life. In the law of God, God says, do this. Don't do that. Obey me. And don't disobey me. And if you obey me, you will live. If you obey me, you will be blessed. You will be richly blessed and you will live and live and live and you will ever live and never die. But the law of God says, but if you disobey, if you break even one of my commandments, you will be cursed. You will die. You will suffer for all eternity under my wrath. That's what the law says. So the law sets forth the norm and the standard of human life. It's very simple. Why is there suffering and misery and agony in this world? Because we, we human beings have broken the law of God. Because in our first parents we fell into sin. We disobeyed. And we were plunged into suffering and death and all kinds of miseries. That first of all, the misery of life is the curse of God upon a sinful and rebellious and disobedient human race. All misery, all suffering, and ultimately death and hell itself are the curses of God that he rains down upon a sinful human race. But in the second place, the law of God is not only the standard for human life, it's the standard for Christian life. God gives his law to his people. Yes, God writes the law on the conscience of every man, but he gave his law to Israel in the Old Testament, and he gives his law to us. He gives his law to his people every single Lord's Day. And he gives his law to us as the standard for life in his covenant, life in his kingdom, This is how I want you to live, my people. This is how you are to live. God reveals to us in his law that what he requires of us is not simply that we go through a list of do's and don'ts, that we go through the motions of religion, that we offer sacrifices and rituals. Even the scribe understood that. And Jesus said about that scribe, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God, in verse 34. And back in verse 33, the scribe had said that to love God with all the heart and understanding and soul and strength and to love the neighbor is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He understood that. Do you understand that too? 
that what the law of God requires of you and of me is not just that we come to church, not just that we pray, not just that we sing, not just that we bring our offerings, go through the motions of religion, but that we love him. If all that God required in his law of us as his people was that we tick off certain boxes of external deeds, then we would inevitably minimize our sins as mere blunders, mere slip-ups. I forgot to tick the box today. Or it would cause us to boast that we constantly tick off all the boxes. We constantly, always, and only obey the laws of God. And we would not know our sins and miseries. But the law that God gives to us as his people is, love me. When that scribe came to Jesus, according to verse 28, we are told that he heard the answers that Jesus gave to other inquirers, the Herodians and the Sadducees, and he perceived that Jesus' answers were good. So he decided to bring a question about the law. Verse 28, he asked Jesus, which is the first commandment of all? What is the chief commandment, he wanted to know? Number one commandment, most important thing. And Jesus answered him without any hesitation. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandments greater than these. Notice those two great commandments. First of all, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Notice about that commandment. The commandment is not simply thou shalt love God. That commandment comes to everyone, to all humanity. Love God. But the first and great commandment comes to you as a child of God and to me. Love the Lord thy God. Thy God. This God whom you are to love is thy God. This is the God who first loved you. The God who loved you before the foundation of the world, who predestinated you unto everlasting life with him, and who sent his only begotten Son into the world to suffer and die on the cross so that you might inherit everlasting life, who now sends you his Holy Spirit to unite you to Christ and bestow upon you the riches of salvation to give you comfort and joy and peace and rest. The God who has done great things for you and who continues to do great things and promises after this life to bring you into heavenly glory. The law is, love him. He's your God. Love him. 
Love Him with all your heart. Not just a portion of your heart. Not just half of your heart. Not just three quarters of your heart. Love Him with all of your heart. With wholehearted devotion. Love Him with all of your soul. With full-fledged spiritual devotion. Love Him with all of your mind. So that the thought of your God is in your mind. Every day. All day. Throughout the day. In all that you do. In all of your activities. In all of your duties. And with all your strength. So that you spend yourself, all of your energy, the energy of your body, the energy of your mind, the energy of your soul. You spend it all in pursuit of the glory of your God. That's the first commandment. And the second is like unto it. It's also a law of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. The law is not just to love your neighbor. Because if the law was simply love your neighbor, then no doubt we would be tempted to think that as long as I don't bother my neighbor, then I've kept the law. As long as I don't get in his way, as long as I leave him alone, as long as I mind my own business, then I've obeyed the law. I'm not doing evil to my neighbor. I'm not hurting my neighbor. I'm not doing anything wrong to him. So I guess I'm obeying the law. But that's not the law. The law is love thy neighbor as thyself. As you love yourself. To the degree that you love yourself. In the ways that you love yourself. How, do, how much do we love ourselves? Oh, we love ourselves very much. We take great care of ourselves. We give great attention to our own needs, our own desires, our own pleasures, our time, our money, our family, our children, our happiness. We love ourselves very much. In fact, it could be said that we give the lion's share of our heart and soul and mind and strength to the love of ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourselves. Love your neighbor with the same care and attention and thoughtfulness and consideration and empathy and sympathy and compassion with which you love yourself. And do that for God's sake because your neighbor might not be lovable at all. There might be nothing about him that's lovable. There might be much about him that's hateful. But love him for God's sake. Love him because God loves you and God wants you to love him. It always goes back to that. The law of God to us, to you, to me, is that we love him and our neighbor because he loved us. Whence knowest thou thy misery? Out of that law of God. Why is that? Well, we've seen already that the law of God shows us the general explanation of why there's misery in this world. 
Well, now we need to zero in on our unique misery as Christians. Why is it that this law tells us to love God and our neighbor because of his great love for us? That shows us the nature of our misery as Christians. As the Catechism goes on to ask, can you keep all these things perfectly? Notice very carefully what the question of the Catechism is there. The question is not, can you keep these things? The question is not, do you love God? Do you love your neighbor? Because then the answer would be, yes, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. I do. The question is not either, can you keep all these things? Can you keep all these things? Can you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? And can you love your neighbor as yourself? Can you love God in respect to all of his Ten Commandments? Can you? Because the answer to that would also be yes. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And as Lord's Day 44 of the Catechism points out, it is my firm resolution from the heart to keep not only some, but all the commandments of God because of that new life and that new principle that God has placed in my heart. I can love God, and I do, but that's not the question. The question of Lord's Day 2 is, canst thou keep all these things perfectly? And the answer to that question is, in no wise. That's my misery. I cannot keep all these things perfectly. I cannot love the Lord my God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength perfectly. I cannot love my neighbor as myself perfectly. I can't. I can't. And I don't. That's the misery of the Christian, isn't it? Though God has loved me and sent his Son to be the propitiation for my sins, And while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me on the cross to manifest the greatness of God's love for me. Although he loves me with this astounding love that passes understanding, this inexpressible, unspeakable, glorious, eternal love, yet I still don't love him with my whole heart all the time, but I drift away from him. And I set my heart upon earthly treasures and earthly pleasures. And I pursue those things with passion and zeal and enthusiasm. And I spend my heart and soul and mind and strength seeking new toys and new pleasures and new experiences and new riches and earthly joys and happiness. And I drink and I party and I look for fame and popularity and riches 
because I love the things of this earth. That's my misery. Even though God has chosen me from the beginning unto salvation, He has chosen me. He didn't have to choose me. He didn't choose everybody, but He chose me to salvation. Yet I don't always choose Him. But often, I choose not to pray. I choose not to listen to His voice. I choose not to read the Scriptures or to meditate on spiritual things but I choose to flip on a movie in which the name of my God is blasphemed. I choose to watch a movie in which there are sexual abominations of actors and actresses who are not married to each other, engaging in illicit sexual activities with each other, even pornographic. That's our misery. My misery is that God has forgiven my sins. He forgave me my sins. My awful, wretched sins. He's forgiven every single one of those sins, and he blots them out because of the precious blood of Christ. And yet, I find a way to hold in my heart a grudge against certain people. I maintain bitterness and resentment and pride. And I go around and I gossip about the people that I don't like. And I backbite and I slander them behind their backs. It's that God has given me the unspeakable gift of his own dear son. His own dear son. But I can't find it in myself to give more than a few dollars sometimes to the needs and the causes of the kingdom. More than a few dollars and a little bit of change. that I can't find it in myself to give a little bit of my time to visit the sick and the needy and the widows and the orphans because it's not convenient for me. That's my misery. It's the fact that God is not angry with me. He has no wrath toward me at all because Jesus on the cross took the fullness of the burden of God's wrath against my sins And he exhausted that wrath fully once and for all on the cross. And yet, I still get angry. Unrighteously. I still let my temper flare. I still yell. I still get enraged. How can that be? How can all of that be? That's our misery. The law of God teaches us that the misery that we experience is not just sickness. It's not just financial struggles. It's not just the loss of loved ones. It's not even death. Because we know as Christians that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, in body and soul, in life and death. And therefore, all of these things work together for our good and serve our salvation. And that's our comfort. We have that comfort. No matter what happens, we're okay 
Because God is our refuge and our strength. He's our Father and our God. But our misery is that this God who has done such things for us, who has been so good to us and so faithful to us, we don't serve perfectly. We don't love perfectly. We aren't thankful to him perfectly. The misery of the Christian is this. I want to love him perfectly. I want to. I want to love him with all my heart. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. I hate the evil that the devil tempts me to do, tempts me to think, tempts me to say. I hate it, and yet I do it. I want to love him, but I don't. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? That's the misery of the Christian. Sometimes the misery of the Christian is like David. When we walk in sinful ways, and we justify our sins, and we excuse them, and we minimize them, even gross sins like adultery and murder, somehow we find a way to minimize and justify and excuse those sins. Then the misery of the Christian is this. God doesn't let us remain that way, but he places his hand upon us, his big, thick, heavy, divine hand. He rests it upon our shoulders and he presses down. Psalm 32, 3 and 4. Thy hand was heavy upon me until my moisture turned into the drought of summer, David says. My whole life, as it were, dried up. I lost all joy. But then I acknowledged my sin. I confessed my transgression unto the Lord. And he forgave the iniquity of my sin. The misery of the Christian is the shame that we feel when we fall into repeated besetting sins. Why do I do this? Why do I do this sin? So that like the publican, we come into church not with our heads up high, puffed up like a, like a proud, arrogant person, like a Pharisee, but like the publican beating on our breasts. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the nature of our misery as Christians. Why is it that we have this misery? That we can't keep all these things perfectly as long as we're in this life? Because, the Catechism says, because I'm prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. That's why. Now, of course, we understand that before regeneration, every single man who is born into the world is prone to hate God and his neighbor. Every man is prone to that. Which means that he is totally depraved. 
All he's able to do is hate. And although he does many things that seem very loving, externally, the Catechism teaches us here on the basis of God's word that in his heart, he's not really loving anyone or anything but himself, and he hates everyone outside of himself. And everything he does is out of hatred for them and love for himself. But after regeneration, what about that? Well, we've seen the Catechism is speaking to the believer. The Catechism is speaking to you and me here. We are regenerated believers who have the Spirit of Christ in our hearts, who have been born again, who have a new man, who are new creatures. And yet, the reason that I have this misery is that I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. I am. Now. But the key is by nature. By nature. I am prone to hate God and my neighbor. I have a new man that is victorious in Christ. But as long as I live in this life, I still have the old man. And that old man is my nature, my original nature. And according to that nature, I am prone still to hate God and my neighbor. Are you? Are you prone by nature to hate God and your neighbor? Do you experience that? Do you experience that now as a Christian? And to help us answer that, let me ask this. Are you selfish? Am I? Are we selfish? Because I believe selfishness is the root of hatred. Hatred rises out of selfishness. Why do we hate God? Why do we hate our neighbor? We hate them because they get in our way. We hate them because they block us. They frustrate us. They thwart our plans. We want to do something. And God and the neighbor stand in the way. That's hatred. Get out of my way. So I can do what I want to do. That's selfishness. Are you selfish? Do you experience selfishness in your soul? Of course. We're all selfish. And therefore, it should not be hard for us to confess personally. I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. I'm prone to that. That's the explanation for our misery. That old man is still with us and will be until we die. Now, this sermon this morning is not intended to discourage us. This Lord's Day is not intended to discourage us. The first part of the Catechism on our misery, maybe we don't like that part of the Catechism, but it's not meant to deflate, discourage, 
and beat us down. It's meant to humble us. And it does. It humbles the Christian. It humbles us deeply. And this is one of God's will, one of God's desires for us, as long as we live in this world, that we be humbled, constantly humbled, repeatedly humbled by the knowledge of our sins and miseries. Why? So that we will be driven to the old rugged cross. Driven there. The gospel to us this morning says, okay, Christian, miserable Christian, flee into the loving arms of Christ. Take shelter under the shadow of the wings of Jesus. Hide under the shadow of the cross and cling to the blood of the Lord that he shed for you on the cross to blot out all your sins and all your transgressions. Take comfort in the fact that you belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, in body and soul. And make this prayer, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, we give thanks to thee for the law and the gospel. We give thanks to thee for humbling us, for showing us our sins and miseries. We are part of a fallen, sinful human race, and even now as Christians, how selfish we can be and how often we fall short. We pray, Father, that thou would, through humbling us today, drive us to a sincere sorrow of heart, that we confess our iniquities, and that we flee to the shadow of the cross, and we find shelter under the forgiving and cleansing arms of Christ.